Hey Cordova, it's great to be with you today. Um, I just wanted to jump in before the sermon here, and uh, it, we, you know, we we try to engage the text here. We try to come to the scriptures and and see what it is that they're saying, and the way that that might um, shift and change some things for us. Today we're going to talk about marriage. Uh, we're going to talk about sex and sexual brokenness. Um, we are going to talk about difficulty in sexual relationships and the way that that uh, played out for Israel and in Israel's world, the way that Moses commanded and led his people to deal with those things. Um, you know, and we live in a world that is is full of that kind of brokenness, that is full of that kind of uh, difficulty. And my hope today is that as you hear this, um, that you hear God's heart. You hear God's heart for you. Uh, you hear, you may be able to pick up on it there. Um, you know, I, I preach this confessionally, and um, I preach this knowing that I am uh, deeply accountable for my own my own brokenness, sexually, relationally, um, and otherwise. But I also preach it knowing that there is a deep sense um, of God's grace, God's healing at work, um, at work in these texts, at work in um, in my life, uh, at work in our relationships. So I ask that you would come ready to hear from the Lord today. Let's let's pray. Father in heaven, you have uh, given us your word to guide and direct our paths, to guide and direct uh, us into your eternal into your eternal life that begins even here, that begins even now. Father, may we leave aside those things of this world which are temporary and fragile and instead turn ourselves uh, toward, a, toward uh, reaching for and grasping toward uh, the eternal, secure, certain things that we have in you. We all come to this broken. We all come to this without having it figured out or understood. And so we ask, Lord God, that, um, that in our brokenness, we would see uh, that your Son is the one who takes on all brokenness and shame. May we know, Lord, what it is to be restored in Christ as we listen to this sermon, as we hear this word proclaimed today. In Jesus' name, amen. I gave my daughter to marry this man, to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, <laughs> and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon the vir a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman. 
Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to stand under your word. This morning, we know that sometimes these words are difficult for us to hear uh, for different reasons. And we pray, Lord, uh, for understanding, for open ears, um, for depth of insight, um, and the ability, Father, to submit ourselves to you in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, portions of scripture like this can often be difficult for us. Um, They seem, honestly, repulsive (laughs) and, and punitive sometimes to the wrong person um, as we read a text like this. Uh, and, and honestly, just kind of wrong-headed uh, they're so, because they're so far from us culturally, right? To try to understand what marriage was so many thousands of years ago in a different culture, a different place, tribal people, patriarchal culture, as Moses is getting ready to bring his people across the Jordan. In, in their world, um, marriage was not an agreement between two people who loved each other, that they were going to remain, um, you know, they were going to express through the pronouncement of their personal love uh, this devotion and covenant to one another. Marriage was a property arrangement, right? It, it was about the uniting of households, the bringing together of two families, but it was also a, a property arrangement. And, and we kind of look at that and we go, yeah, I don't think so. I, <laughs> I'm not going to go with them there. And that's, that is fine and good, and we'll talk about actually a little bit, why we have those feelings a little bit later. But that's the world that they lived in, right? That's the world that they lived in. And and it's important for us to try to read these texts generously. Rather than coming at them and saying, why couldn't they understand our our day, these 3,500 years later or 4,000 years later? Why couldn't they get together what it was to be married in a kind of liberated and equal world where women and men can both own property, where women and men can both work, where women, you you see what I'm saying? There's, if we're going to have a generous reading of this text, if we're going to come at this in a way that says, yes, we're going to read these in ways that they would have read them, then we have to, we've got to press pause for a second sometimes on those feelings. And we all know that even today, the world can be a dangerous place for women, right? Um, 
I'm always reminded. I, you know, in college, we'd go do like homeless ministry and stuff, and we'd kind of be <laughs> downtown in whatever alleys, talking to whoever in dark corners and places, and and we just kind of have women who would be like, "Yeah, I'm not going with you. That's not <laughs> that's not gonna happen." <laughs> and and they were right to do that, but sometimes my own head just sort of skips over that reality. Um, imagine how much more dangerous the world would be in a world without cell phones. <laughs> or a world without security cameras, or a world where the only real protection on you was your ability to scream, and to get somebody to hear that scream and then respond, right? If that's your only security system, and if you live in a world that is that dangerous, you can understand in places the terror that would have been many women's realities during this, in this place and in this time. Uh, it was a patriarchal world, right? Um, and not only a patriarchal world, it was a, a patrilocal world, meaning that property, it wasn't just like, okay, men sort of rule everything and get all the good jobs. It was patrilocal, meaning that in order for property to pass down, except in a few exceptions, it had to go through a man, right? So in order for somebody to be preserved and protected over time, it had, you had to have a male relative that was going to be able to receive that for your own preservation and sustenance into the future. So a lot of these laws are about preserving and maintaining a male relative, a close male relative, a father, a husband, or a son, in the life of an abused woman, right? And that might seem strange to us because we look at it and we go, wait a second, the man is the one who abused her. <laughs> and maybe things should be different. But for their world, there was no way without actually totally undoing their society to try to, to bring these things forward, okay? Marriage was about property. It was all about long-term protection. You know, women would go from their parents' house to their husband's house and in the process, and then eventually if they lived long enough, you know, to their son's house, um, they would be protected in that process. And so the questions were things like, were the parents, you know, compensated properly? Uh, for the situation that happened with their daughter? Was her honor in place? Um, and it was only after those things were in place that love actually became an issue, right? I'm not saying that there was no love in their world or that their relationships were not full of love. We see many examples that were, but it was a secondary question, right? And a woman in their world would have said, first off, provide for me as a way of proving to me that you love me. Right? I don't need notes, honey. I need you to bring home those sheep or whatever you know money was at the time. <laughs> and so we read texts like this and our antenna go up, you know? And, and and honestly, as modern Christians, a lot of us go, yeah, I just skipped that part. It's like the genealogies. I'm not that worried about it. Who begat who? We just sort of move on more quickly. Let me get to some of the, you know, the wild prophets and the stuff they're saying or what Jesus is doing. That's the stuff that actually matters to me. And yet, I don't know that we can just skip it. We don't have to follow it completely, and sometimes we think we do. We've got to go to these Old Testament texts, and we have to follow them to the letter and the law because we really care about Scripture, and I'm not sure about that either. And so I hope we can learn to interpret these texts better than that. The law, the Torah, these first five books of the Bible in particular, you know, we think of chunks of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that are so centered on how they ought to live in the land, these are not a standard for crystallizing our culture, our time, and our place. 
or one culture, time, and place, right? So I, I, I don't know if you noticed, but a couple years ago, scientists changed how much everything weighed. Did you know that? It was only like five, five years ago or so. Everything was changed in how much it weighed. Because it, before, the, the kilogram, right? And some of you guys might go, well, yes, but we measured stuff in pounds. Well, here's the thing. Even our pounds were connected to this kilogram. It was just a certain fraction of those. So a kilogram's like two, a little over two pounds, right? There's a couple science teachers here. How much is it? Is it how many decimals? It's just, it's just 2.2 flat? See, we don't know because, the, but the scientists know, right? And they care about those super details. And so there was this kilogram, which this kind of hockey puck sized piece of metal that was in a basement in France. It was under a glass case and you weren't allowed to touch it because if you touched it, you change the weight, right? You might get some oil from your fingers on there. And if, if the kilogram changed, then all kilograms changed because that was the kilogram, right? And so if that thing got cut in half somehow, we would all double in weight. We would just immediately, everything would be twice as heavy. And, and what they noticed, this kilogram had been there for a few, like a hundred, a little over a hundred years, right? And they noticed that it actually had lost a little bit of mass. It lost about an eyelash worth of mass in those, in those 100, 150 years. So we all, I don't, we all gained just a little bit. I was like a hundred eyelashes heavier or whatever it was. Right? And that doesn't matter to me, but it matters to scientists and people who are measuring things really, really closely. So what did they do? They took, this, they took this piece of metal, this little hockey puck, and they changed the kilogram from relating to this one static object to relating to a part of Planck's constant, which is just something I'm repeating that I read on the internet. I don't know what it is. But it's, it's, it's a number, and it's a number that is eternal, kind of constant everywhere in the universe. So you can leave the Earth, you can go out to Pluto, you can go beyond you know, the Oort cloud, you can go into the next galaxy, and Planck's constant will be the same everywhere. They connected our idea of the kilogram from this one actual physical object in a basement in France to being connected to a number that doesn't change, shift, or move. You see what happened? They moved from a static and fragile object to something that is eternal and constant in all times and everywhere. Why am I talking about a kilogram? <laughs> because here's the thing. God mercifully inserts himself into our world. We call it the incarnation. Right? He doesn't leave us aside or alone. And there was a time when God inserted himself into our world with something that was static and fragile and complete in its own little glass case. It's called the law, the Torah. Right? And it was the law, it was the way of life for Israel in that time, in that place. It was how they were to live in that time and place. But God didn't stop there, right? And if we, if we take that revelation, the law, the Torah, and we leave it under that glass case and we go, well, we can't ever touch it, we can't blow on it, we can't do anything that might accidentally threaten to jeopardize this static, fragile object, because if we do, we're all gonna be in trouble. We're all gonna lose or gain weight over time. The world won't be constant. There will be nothing that we can compare it to. 
God enters into our world, but not in a fragile way. Instead, God transforms our world because he enters in as an eternal constant, just like Planck's number, right? He enters in as this eternal reality. And so in their context and for their place, the law was God's way of entering in. It was a non-fragile way of God engaging. But when we take that and we crystallize it and we pause it and we say, don't move or change or shift this in any way, we miss the point. In our world, in our context, interpretation helps. And so let me just run through this really quickly. The first portion of the text, um, 13 to 21, deals with a man who marries a woman. And then immediately after he marries her, like the next day, right? It says he hates her. What it means is he's not happy with what he found out, with what he discovered, right? Or right, you know, pretty quickly thereafter. And so he looks for a way to send her back to her parents' house. What's the return policy on this marriage? And, and, and if the charges and the, the sort of thing that's behind the thing that's behind the scenes here is he's, he's insinuating that there was unfaithfulness that nobody knew about, right, that she had gotten away with. And so he's able to bring those charges, and if they prove true, there's not much room for grace by our standard, right? She is turned over to the normal law, and this would have been true in Israel, in Canaan, in Egypt, in other places around the world. She's turned over to the normal law of the day. The same consequence was there for a garden variety adulterers, Right? Man and woman run off and have an affair together when they're caught, they're turned over to that same law. But the Torah, and hear this, this is amazing for the ancient world. This is profoundly progressive amongst Israel and her neighbors. This is like way out on the edge civil rights movement kind of thing that I'm about to tell you what it, Moses told his people. He invites the parents to defend her honor. She is not, even though she's married and even though they've been together, she is not cast at his mercy, right? She's not at the mercy of her angry or disappointed or otherwise dissatisfied husband. Instead, her parents are able to defend her honor and to do it with evidence, to come and say, no, you know, you've all read medieval stuff. Like this is, <laughs> there is evidence of her virginity. And here's, if the man loses the case, what happens? He becomes the accused. He becomes the accused, and he's disciplined. He's whipped, and then he's fined. He's forced to get, and then he's forced to marry her without being able to divorce her. Why does that matter? Because he has to guarantee her security for life. There's no option for him anymore. There's no escape cord that he can pull to say, well, I'm going to send this woman away because I'm no longer happy with her. He's not allowed to divorce. He's got to guarantee her well-being. And we might cringe at this, but in this world, this was a very woman-centric way of reading things, of understanding marriage. It was meant ultimately to rehabilitate the man so that by the end of his life, he would learn what it meant to be a real husband. He would learn how to love her. He would learn how to give himself for her. He would learn to care for her according to the way that God wanted husbands to care for wives. In the case of rape, in 23 to 27, Moses gives two circumstances, right? In the first, there's a woman who's engaged to be married. She's betrothed. 
And, and Moses draws a distinction between something that happens in town and something that happens in the country. Um, in town, the assumption is that she's going to cry out. And if she cries out, then people are going to hear, and if people hear, they're going to respond, and we're not going to have this situation, right? And so the distinction is really, you know, what, whether or not she cries out, and, and ultimately what they're saying is, was it rape or not? Was it rape or was it adultery? If it's rape, there are serious consequences. In the open country, in the open country, it's assumed. Her innocence is assumed. She does not have to prove anything. She doesn't have to approve to prove anything. The man is executed. However, if she's not engaged, because the thing is, if the man then was executed, then what happens? Now the man is dead, and now she doesn't have the honor that she needs to guarantee a wedding, and now nobody's going to marry her, and she's not going to have her future in place, right? So in the case where she's not engaged, she's actually married to that man. Now I know, again, I know that we read that and we go, that is crazy. Why would you want to force somebody to marry the person that they just violated? The whole point is to turn that man into an alimony machine for the woman. That he is required to care for her for the rest of her life. And he also, he can't divorce her, right? There's no way out of that. So do you see how these laws have, has, and I know we read it and we go, oh, that just is so cringy. <laughs> that is so uncomfortable. <laughs> the point here, Deuteronomy always wants to look out for the person who is weak in the situation. First off, amazingly, women are, they are capable of agency, right? Which means they can do good, they can also sin. Women are not universally innocent because women are whole people. <laughs> and we often have this understanding of the Old Testament that says like, well, but it was just patriarchal and women were just, were, uh, you know, objects to be used and all that kind of stuff. No, read it closely. They are able to sin as well as able to do good. Full agency, full personhood. But there's also this preferential option for the weak. Deuteronomy wants to look out for the person who is weak. And I think often that's what we need to take forward from this. That God enters into this world of ancient, patriarchal, tribal Israel and provides a way of living that takes into the account the weak and the vulnerable according to their standards. Right. Sometimes we look at these texts. We look at these texts in, in the law. We look at, there are some prophetic texts that are profoundly uncomfortable for us. We even sometimes look in the New Testament. We look at Paul, what Paul has to say about husbands and wives and we go, that even seems a little bit regressive. Not sure I want to be following that. But here's the thing that amazed me this week. Why is all of this so uncomfortable for us? You know why? It's uncomfortable because what Scripture wanted to do worked. Because Scripture wanted to take a culture that was tribal and patriarchal and saw women, was in a culture that saw women as objects. And what was it that entered in and changed the way those cultures acted? It was Scripture. It was the revelation of God that said women are full people made in the image of God and men are full people made in the image of God. 
And so if everyone who is made is made in the image of God, then it transforms the way that we treat each other. And as that sunk in and as that reality became something that we assumed, all of a sudden we can actually start to talk about something like rights when that was not even a possibility among Israel and her neighbors. It was only by taking these texts seriously that we can begin to see the sort of transformation that leads to mutual love and partnership between men and women. They worked. But it also shows that God's love is always known incarnationally. God's love is always known as he enters in, not just into our flesh, but into our culture. It is always known by God entering into both the wonderful and the repulsive details of our world with his eternal truth. Right? And he doesn't do it by crystallizing a culture in one time and place and putting glass over it and saying, don't touch it and don't interpret it and, and don't get too close because you might change it. And sometimes that's what we do with scripture. No, God enters into it the way that Planck's constant enters into something and says, I'm not worried about changing. I'm a constant. I'm the same here. I'm the same there. I'm the same everywhere. And so we see God enter incarnationally into Israel's world. Moving into those specific times and places so that we might then come to understand the eternal. Part of the difficulty in this for me is that I'm actually not convinced that our understanding of marriage is even better, right? We've changed, right? And we're maybe better in this regard when it comes to equality and, and mutual agency. But we've also twisted marriage in different ways. We are misguided. First off, among the fact that we want to place the number one most important thing about marriage is whether or not our emotional and personal needs are met, right? We often get rid of our sort of standard marriage vows till death doeth part, and instead we just express, like, we just sort of bleed all over, whatever, like, it's just sort of like, well, what do I feel right now? We, we just have this, like, mushy, I just want to sort of put it all forward, and it's more about me being, like, authentically mushy than it is about me actually making vows that mean something. And the problem then is that when that mush is gone and I no longer feel like that and mush doesn't stick around, it always fades, I no longer feel like that, now there's no reason for me to stay in the relationship because the relationship doesn't speak to anything other than how I feel about the person. And I'm like a very, I'm a very up and down person. <laughs> it's, I need vows. I really do. I, you know what I... You know what I said to Indra on our wedding day? The exact same vows you see in everywhere. The exact same marriage vows. You know why? It's not because I remember them. It's because I needed a, a standard, a rule, something I could put up against my face at some point. I told her this week, I think I'm finally the husband I thought I was going to be. It only took me five years and two kids uh, <laughs> to be able to be the husband I thought I was going to be on like day one. <laughs> Just been like failing my way forward. And I need those vows to hold me to something, something objective, something real that's not going to shift around when my feelings shift around. 
But we end up agreeing divorce because we don't feel right about it anymore. It's not that any infidelity has occurred. It's not that any abuse has happened. We just, quote unquote, fell out of love. And I think both marriage as property and marriage as personal fulfillment are equally wrongheaded. Neither of them see that in marriage we are doing much more than promising to live with our favorite person or locking down the most socially and financially advantageous person that we can. In marriage, we are agreeing and entering into a covenant, a covenant with another person, being, another person who is in the image of God and a covenant with God. Church of the Nazarene has a stance on divorce. Here's what it is. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> this isn't our, you know, Cordova didn't come up with this. This is a denomination. Studied, thought, prayed, voted, all that stuff. And it's that if no infidelity, right, no one has cheated, and if no abuse has occurred, if those things have occurred, then let's have a conversation, okay? But if, if that stuff has not occurred, then it's not an option. And it's not an option because God doesn't cheat on us, <laughs> right? God also doesn't abuse us, uh, but God doesn't cheat on or abuse us. And so divorce then is not an option. If there's not a real breakage of the covenant or danger to one of the parties. Now, I know that the world is complicated, but here's what I'm trying to say. Your marriage, my marriage, our marriage, and your singleness, by the way, right? This isn't just about marriage. This is also about how you are single. It speaks to something. It's a part of something bigger than you. It speaks to the fact that devotion speaks of the devotion of the passionate love of God made clear in the mystery of the incarnation. Our marriages are sermons. Our vows are sermons. They are proclamations to the world of God's devoted love. And so when you love, you live out the sermon of Jesus Christ who says, I love you enough to enter into your world, both the wonderful and the repulsive parts of it. If we fall short of that, let me encourage that God is calling you deeper. Husbands, how do you glorify and love your wives? How does your love lift her up and make her resplendent in the light of God's grace? How is she more beautiful for the way that you have loved her? Marriage is actually about displaying ourselves into the world, a core truth of God's person, that love enacted in community makes God known to the world. And just as Jesus' love for us makes us more beautiful, Jesus' love for us makes us who we were always meant to be. So our sacrificial love for one another should do the same. So let me clear this up with a few comments. When Jesus is asked about divorce in Matthew 19, he doesn't point back to the Mosaic law, right? He does not point back to Deuteronomy 22 to clarify the situation. And he doesn't point back to David and Solomon and their dozens of wives, well, hundreds, right? He doesn't even point back to Jacob and his two wives. When Jesus wants to clarify what marriage is and what it's for, he points back to Adam and Eve, one man and one woman, and made one flesh the sacramental gift of marriage. It means a sign which transmits 
effectively into the, into the visible world, the invisible mystery hidden in God from all eternity. That's what a sacrament is. A sign which transmits effectively into the visible world the invisible mystery hidden in God from all eternity. That's the sacrament of communion, the Lord's Supper. That's the sacrament of baptism, right? They are gifts given to us in physical things like bread and the cup, like water, like the oil of anointing, like the intimacy of a marriage. These physical things which are given to us that transmit the invisible mystery of God into our visible world, which God chooses and blesses to reveal his nature of love and mercy to us. Our gospel reading today is the thing that helps make this clear to me. From John 1.17, it says that Moses brought the law, right? But Jesus brought, did you hear it? Grace and truth. Moses brought the law, Jesus brought grace and truth. Which is a way of saying that the law was static and fragile. The law was a hockey puck under a shield of glass. But Jesus, when he enters into the world, doesn't do it in a static and fragile way. He does it in a living, breathing way that fills and enlivens all things. In fact, what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus is the Word, the eternal constant to which the law pointed imperfectly. And even more fully as we go on, what we see is that Jesus is not just the Word, but Jesus is the Bridegroom. awaiting and working at the perfection of his church, the bride. What we see is that the one who marries us, despite our uncertainty, our doubt, despite our cold feet from time to time, wants to see us made whole, wants to see us perfected in his holiness, wants to see us perfected in his glory, wants to see us perfected in his love. Jesus, you know, removes all shame from us. Adam and Eve in the garden were naked originally, but not ashamed. Then they sinned and shame overtook their whole world as they were cast out from God's presence. And after sin, their nakedness was made known to each other. And only then we started to see that intimacy also become an act of violence. But Jesus becomes, in some ways, the most naked one, the most shamed one. He takes on all shame, he takes on all abuse, and he returns to everyone made in God's image the honor and the dignity that they are simply by being a part of God's creation. And so there's hope. There's hope for those of us that have been broken. There's hope for those of us like me who have been shamed. There's hope for those of us, when I think about well, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> when I think about the things I've done in my life and I just go, oh, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that here. I don't want to talk about that ever. But if you call me or email me, I'll, I'll tell you stories. If, I, 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 I am serious. I'm happy to talk about things in the right context. Uh, but Jesus bears all abuse and he bears all shame on our behalf in order that we might be brought then into his glory in order that that intimacy might be turned from the violence that Deuteronomy is trying to put boundaries around into the glory that Deuteronomy ultimately wants to point us toward. So that we might be brought out of the Egypt of our own making, 
go instead into the promised land of God's making. There's hope for holiness because God has shown us and invited us into the love of His Son, Jesus. All right. I know that sometimes, this really is the last thing, sometimes we can be so full of our guilt and our shame and our brokenness that when someone accuses us, we just shrivel into a ball. When our children go, you're going to tell me to do what? I know what you did, right? I think my mom, she was in her 20s when she started to do the math on when her brother was born. Like, wow, that's the fastest full-term pregnancy in the history of mankind. Because they were married in this month, and he was born in this month, and that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And we can start to ask those questions. We look at our family, and those of us that feel guilty about stuff, we just shrivel up. We don't know what to say or do. How can we answer, answer our children when they ask us those, those things? Well, Paul's words here haunt me from Ephesians 3. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. This is a murderer saying this. This is one who arranged and orchestrated the death of Christians. And yet here he is, I'm the least of the apostles, but I have been given the gift to preach this gospel. So don't let your past become anything that stands in the way of your proclamation of the truth. Don't let anything that has happened to you be something that stands in the road of you doing what God is calling you into. But instead, what does he say before that? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that God, the eternal constant in our universe, in all things and all places, cannot be contained or put under glass, that he was made human voluntarily in the womb of Mary. And that by so doing, he opened up the way for all people to be saved and to be made holy. He gave of himself. He did not shrink back from what some would have called ridiculous, shameful, absurd, that the Almighty God should become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let Christ become visibly, manifestly incarnate in your life today, in your marriage, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your relationships. Invite Him in to bring healing and hope. Why? Because the bridegroom is eager to know His bride and to bring us into His eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for your mercy, for your love, for the unimaginable gift of this mystery of the gospel that we would be found in you. May we live, Lord, into this mystery, whether it's in our marriage, whether it is in our singleness, that we would find the very mystery of our body, wonderful and glorious, drawing us into the gift of your eternal covenant with us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.
and I want to come in at the end again just to give you um, a quick challenge. Uh, you know, whether it's in our relationships, whether it is in the way that we um, deal with one another, uh, we deal with one another's bodies, uh, that we deal with our own singleness, that we, I mean, whatever it is, um, we are called as scripture does to engage the world and not to avoid it. And so my, my challenge today for you, my hope is that as you um, engage the word of God spoken over you, as you engage um, and come to stand under the word of God, that you would, you would also be looking around you into this world for the ways that God is calling you forward, for the ways that God is calling you to be plugged in, not escaping or avoiding the difficulty of the world, but instead engaging with the world with the trust that in Christ all answers will be made clear. So I hope that um, that is helpful most of all. I hope that you see God at work in your life and in your world today. God bless. We'll see you on Sunday. 